Jeremiah 23, as we studied on Sunday, it begins with a clear condemnation of the bad shepherds of Judah. Specifically those final four kings following Josiah, you have the final four who led the sheep of Judah to wander far away from the Word of God. The Lord chastises in chapters 21 and 22, and I remind you this because 21 all the way through about 25 is really one section. They're different prophecies, but Jeremiah, or perhaps his scribe uh, Baruch, they put this together in this way. I believe inspired by the Spirit to do so. So these prophecies, though drawn from different places, different times, are put together in the scroll of Jeremiah and the book of Jeremiah on purpose. So 21 through 25 is a section that all goes together. And we saw last week, 21 and 22, are a chastisement of all four of those kings. Very specifically, called out by name as the Lord goes down one after another. Zedekiah, the last king, he does first. And then he does the first Uh, 3 before Zedekiah. He does 2nd in chapter 22. And then chapter 23 begins with a woe to these bad shepherds. And of course, as we saw, immediately parlays into the final king, the real king, Messiah the king, Jesus. And it's a marvelous section there we studied on Sunday through verse 8. Well, we're going to pick up again now in verse 9 with more bad shepherds, those who would fall into the category of bad shepherds, not the political leaders. They've already been called out. Now we're going to look at the spiritual leaders, the prophets and the priests, and their bad shepherding. So verse 9, picking up there, Jeremiah is now speaking, and he writes, As for the prophets, my heart is broken within me. All my bones tremble. I have become like a drunken man even like a man overcome with wine because of the Lord and because of His holy words. Note that. You might want to underline that. I feel this way. I'm brokenhearted. I'm stumbling like I'm drunk because of the Lord and because of His holy words. And then he goes on to say, For the land is full of adulterers. For the land mourns because of the curse. The pastures of the wilderness have dried up. Their course also is evil and their might is not right. And Jeremiah has talked about this before. I look around at the land, he says, and it's not in good shape. The crops are not bearing. The water is not flowing. The fields are not green. The land itself is under the curse of this people. And the people are being led astray by bad shepherds. Jeremiah is heartbroken here. Again, we see the humanity of Jeremiah. He's just a guy. Don't forget that. He's just a man like you. A man like me. Just a human bearing the burden, the weight of the Word of God. And it's not always easy to do that. And here's Jeremiah, and he's looking at these bad shepherds, and he's recognizing after giving the prophecy of the great branch, Messiah the branch, he still has to deal with what's happening right here, right now, present day, just like we do. We know Jesus is coming. And yet we still have to deal with the right now, don't we? And that can become heavy, and it was for Jeremiah. Those who should have been his co-laborers with the message of God, those who should have been his compadres in the ministry were corrupt. And they were compromised. And that's hard. I've had compadres in ministry go that direction. I've watched brothers in the Lord be compromised. And it's disheartening when all you want to do is teach the Word, and there's nothing better The Bible tells us when brothers dwell together in unity, 
You know, when we walk side by side, brothers and sisters together with the Gospel message, encouraging one another, standing for the truth together, there's nothing more encouraging than that. And to me, there's nothing more discouraging than when brothers and sisters in the Lord turn away from the Word of the Lord and cave in to the unrighteousness of the world in which we live. That's where Jeremiah's at. But note that again, he says, it's because of the Lord and because of His holy words. In other words... Ignorance is bliss. If we didn't know what we know by the Scriptures, you know what? Honestly, there would be days where it would be a little easier to live. Where we would just say, whatever. Who cares? So they want to show those things on TV? I don't care. So that's the headlines? Whatever. I could just ignore it because I wouldn't know any better. And the thought does run through my mind sometimes. Lord, if I didn't know all of this how much easier life might be. It's that same bitterness that we talked about last week or the week before. It's that bitterness that accompanies the sweetness of the Word of God. Nothing to me is more sweet than the Word of God, and yet biblical revelation can bring up heartburn. It can bring up bitterness in our lives. Biblical revelation, let me put it this way, is not always what we think it's going to be. Oh, I want revelation, we say. Now, I want to know God's will, we say. And then we know God's will, we learn His will, and we go, really? i got to do that? Or it's that direction? Let me give you an example. I was flying back on the plane from California, and they had the little TV screens in front of us, and they were running these channels, and it was the Discovery Channel. I'm kind of flipping through the channels. And I come to the Discovery Channel, and it is one of those inane reality shows. And they're all the same thing, they're just in different places. You realize that they're just all the same Basic plot idea. Pitting man against man. And so, this one was called Property Wars. I confess to you, I confess, I was drawn in. I'm like 30,000 feet going, who's going to get this house? It was the most important. Don't, I don't want the crackers. I just want to watch Property Wars. I was just locked. The whole premise of this show is it's professional home buying teams that go around Phoenix and they're pitted against each other and all they can do is see the outside of the house. They cannot go inside and they start to bid against each other and they're calling in the bids. Yeah, go up 140, 145. Oh, he's 140. Go up 150. And they bid and someone wins the house and then they get to go in and see what they actually got. One of these guys went in the home didn't look too great on the outside. It had some weeds and stuff, and it needed a paint job. But they opened the front door, brand new hardwood floors throughout the house, newly painted. There was a, the, the countertop was, was solid stone. It was just beautiful. And they go into the garage, and this guy had been tapping on the garage door. I think there's something in there. I think there's something in there. You know. And all the other guys are going, he's nuts. They go in there, and, and it's a car. That was left behind when the house was foreclosed on. So he, he made twenty, thirty thousand dollars on the deal right off the bat. Another guy picked a really cool house, looked good on the outside, nice location, reminded him of where he grew up, and so he was kind of drawn in emotionally, bought the house, and went in, they opened the door, and it was trashed. No idea what he was about to see. God's word opens the door to the truth. And sometimes the truth is marvelous. And sometimes the truth we see and we go, yes, that is a winning truth. And sometimes the truth is disastrous. Sometimes we hear the truth and we go, I didn't want to hear that. 
Because before I walked in here and heard the truth, I was doing just fine, thank you very much, in this particular sin in my life. But now that I know it's a sin, i got to stop. And I kind of liked it. God's Word opens the door to reveal truth. You know this verse. Your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path, right? I thought about it this week. Psalm 119, 105. We usually think of that in terms of guidance. Your Word is a lamp to my feet. So I'm marching along and I can see where I'm going and it's a light to my path so I can look out ahead a ways and see where I'm going as well. But I think it's more than that. It's not just guidance we're talking about. It's revelation. John 3.20, Jesus says, Everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Paul says in Ephesians 5.13, All things become visible when they are exposed to the light. And Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13, in the context of the Word of God being that two-edged sword, says there is no creature hidden from His sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. God's Word opens the door to truth. Your Word is a light to my feet and a lamp to my path. It reveals what is before me. It shows me what's going on in my life, and it also shows me what's going on in the world around me. It shows little cockroaches scurrying for the corner. You know? The one house that was in bad shape, they went into the bathroom and it was filled with scorpions. The house had a scorpion infestation. God's Word shines the light and suddenly we see those scurrying, ugly, sickening things. i got to tell you something else. This absolutely freaked me out. I'm at Disneyland, right? This is important. <laughs> California Adventure, they have a show, the Bugs Life show. Anyone seen that? Okay, no one told me what my brother Ron and I went in this thing. Ron's a nut for all this stuff. He's like a little kid. So we go, he's got to see the Bugs Life show. I'm like, okay, two grown adult men going to see a Bugs Life show. So we sit down there. I had no idea that at one point they, they start saying, look out, you're going to get poked by the stinger bug. And all of a sudden in the back of your seat, a little poke goes, doink. And I went, ah! <laughs> Is that? Anyway, had nothing to do with anything at all, really, tonight. I just thought I'd share. God's Word will poke you when you least expect it. It's uncomfortable. It reveals things. Where Jesus and salvation and the things of heaven are revealed, oh, it's marvelous. Revelation is breathtaking. But regarding humanity and sin and the stuff of earth, revelation is not breathtaking. Revelation can be bitter and ugly. But we need to see it. We need to see the truth for better or for worse. It's like a parent discovers a child's been lying to them. I didn't want to know that. Now I have to deal with that. You know, a a husband discovers his wife has a drinking problem. I didn't want to know that. A wife realizes her husband is being unfaithful. Had I not known, I would have been happier than I am now. When we see these things, oftentimes we wish that we hadn't. And I believe that's where Jeremiah is at. Because of the Lord and because of His holy words, Jeremiah sees a serious problem in Judah. And the problem is pollution. I'm going to divide up the rest of our study tonight into three parts. Part one is pollution versus provision. Pollution versus provision. Beginning in verse 11, we pick up there. And now the Lord speaks. And He's speaking to the issue. Jeremiah now sees, because of the word of the Lord, I see this, because of the word of the Lord, my heart is broken. And the Lord says, verse 11, 
For both prophet and priest are polluted. Even in my house I have found their wickedness, declares the Lord. Therefore their path will be like, or their way will be like slippery paths to them. They will be driven away into the gloom and fall down in it, for I will bring calamity upon them. The year of their punishment, declares the Lord. Moreover, among the prophets of Samaria, he's talking about northern Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel when it stood, among the prophets of Samaria, I saw an offensive thing. They prophesied by Baal, and they led my people Israel astray. Also, among the prophets of Jerusalem, there in the southern kingdom of Judah, I have seen a horrible thing. The committing of adultery and walking in falsehood and they strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one is turned back from his wickedness. All of them have become to me like Sodom and her inhabitants like Gomorrah. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts concerning the prophets, Behold, I'm going to feed them wormwood. That's bitterness. I will make them drink poisonous water, for from the prophets of Jerusalem, pollution has gone forth into all the land. Now you all know know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed by fire by the Lord, the wickedness, the sinfulness there. Lot couldn't find a single righteous man in the city. And so God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. But I want you to think about Sodom and Gomorrah before the destruction. See, Genesis chapter 13, verse 10 tells us, Lot lifted up his eyes, and he saw all the valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Like the garden of the Lord. So it looked like Eden. Like the land of Egypt as you go to Zoar, which is a well watered area of Egypt. So Lot chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward. When Lot and Abraham parted ways, because there was a little infighting with their shepherds, they parted ways and Abraham said, Lot, choose the land to which you'll go. You go one way, I'll go the other way, and we'll just take the land that way. Lot sees Sodom and Gomorrah, that whole region, and he says, that's that's the choice land. That's the beautiful land. I am going down there. God's provision in creation was that region was beautiful and well watered, and that's how Lot saw it. Lush, green, fertile, until the pollution came. And it would become a destructible place. A place where, if Lot had any friends there by that time, if he had any associations, if he knew people, if he was well established in Sodom and Gomorrah, it was over. It was absolutely destroyed. The Hebrew word for polluted is chanaf, and it means defiled or corrupted. So what we're seeing here when he says pollution has gone forth into all the land, talking about Judah, he's saying this was not the way it was. It has been corrupted. It has been made ugly. It has been made less fruitful. It has been destroyed. But it wasn't that way originally. See, that's the life of a follower of Jesus. You know, we're we're not created to be ugly and sinful. We're created to be children of God. But the sin nature takes over, and very early on, I might add, and that which is supposed to be good and supposed to be beautiful and supposed to be eternal back in the beginning of creation gets twisted and ugly by sin and must be restored and must be redeemed. We become defiled. Pollution. 
Spiritual pollution. By the way, I don't know if you read this, but on February 28, 2013, the Supreme Court of Canada ruled that the biblical language opposing homosexual behavior is now a hate crime. So in our neighbors to the north, for a pastor to stand up and read Romans chapter 1 is a hate crime now in Canada. And it's coming this way. We're not far behind. What do you do, Rick, if it comes to America? The following Sunday, we will open our Bibles to Romans chapter 1, and we will read. We will teach the Word. But my point is this, Proverbs 25-26 says, Like a trampled spring and a polluted well is a righteous man who gives way before the wicked. Hear that. Pollution comes when the righteous cave. When we give in. When we say, oh, I guess that's the way culture's going, so we better go that way. And we become polluted. And pollution continues. According to 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 7, Lot did not give way, but his family did. In fact, Peter says, calls him righteous Lot, which gives us some insight into this man. In the midst of all of this sin and, and wickedness and evil, Lot was still considered by the Lord to be a single righteous man. But everyone around him and his entire family were not. Fast forward 1,400 years from Lot, from Sodom and Gomorrah, and you come to Jerusalem, which had become a polluted well. And in verses 13 and 14, God spells out the problem. He spells it out in contrast. Verse 13, He talks about Samaria. And then in verse 14, He talks about Jerusalem. And the difference is this, and you can read it and think about this, the pollution of Samaria was openly offensive. As verse 13 reads, Moreover, among the prophets of Samaria, I saw an offensive thing. They prophesied by Baal and led my people astray. They were brazen about it. Called the sin of Jeroboam, who started the northern kingdom of Israel. All the people in the ten northern tribes flocked to Jeroboam. He set up golden calves. He set up pagan hierarchy. He set up all of this brazenly, openly, and the northern kingdom just chased after idolatry. No problem. That's what we're about. That's what we do. And it was open. But the pollution of Jerusalem in the kingdom of Judah was not open. It was secret. It was subversive. It's described as, in verse 14, the committing of adultery and the walking in falsehood. Think about that. Adultery is underhanded. Adultery, when it occurs in a marriage, typically one or the other is sneaking off and doing something that the partner does not know about. Lying is underhanded. The adulterer sneaks around, the liar subverts the truth, and in the same way, the shepherds of Judah, they looked like prophets and priests. They were doing their job. They were showing up at temple. They were walking around in sackcloth. They were doing what they were supposed to do to look the part, but they were lying through their teeth. They were polluted. And God's calling them out on that. Jesus said, don't you understand, Matthew fifteen seventeen? that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated, but the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. It's not what goes into your mouth that pollutes. It's what goes into and then proceeds out of your heart. And we need to think about that, because as we've already talked about, Jeremiah 17.9, the heart is desperately sick, right? It's deceitful beyond all else. So the heart's already bad enough all on its own. But the question I would ask for us is, what are we feeding the heart? 
You know, what are we putting into the heart? What kind of spiritual cholesterol is going in? What are we taking into our lives and viewing and reading and listening to and experiencing and how does it impact the heart? Let me say this as a warning in these last days in which we live. The most dangerous prophet, priest, or pastor is the one who appears godly or pretends to speak God's word or maybe he even did at one time but the pollution of pride or the pollution of prosperity or people-pleasing has polluted his heart. And so you got to be careful. Not paranoid, but careful. Testing everything you hear by the sound word of God. Verse 16, the Lord continues on. He says, thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who are prophesying to you. They are leading you into futility. They speak a vision of their own imagination, not from the mouth of the Lord. Lana sent me an email today asking, have you seen anything about this? Uh, Someone has shot around on Facebook, apparently, that we need to be praying fervently, that the Lord told them we need to be praying fervently because there are going to be some bombs, some nuclear bombs, or some kind of bombs set off along the West Coast, probably by North Korea. And I read that and went, oh, that's not good. And I went, based on what? And that's when I shot back to London. Okay, so what's that based on? And where's the confirmation from the Lord? And how do we know that's from the Lord? And it's not just some nut. You know, sharing the imaginations of the heart. Saying, well, but the Lord told me this. And I've said this before. we got to be careful saying the Lord told us anything. I mean, if He did, praise the Lord, then share it. But I'll tell you what, if He did, it's going to be confirmable by His Word. And it's going to be confirmable by those believers who walk according to His Word. It's not just going to be you out there on a limb coming up with some strange thing. Where was I? Oh, so, not from the mouth of the Lord. Verse 17, they keep saying to those who despise Me, Oh, the Lord has said you'll have peace. As for everyone who walks in the stubbornness of his own heart, they say, calamity will not come upon you. I know we got Babylon over here, we got Egypt over here. Don't worry about it. We're in Jerusalem. We got the temple. We're going to be just fine. Verse 18 But who has stood in the counsel of the Lord that he should see and hear his word? Who has given heed to his word and listened? Behold, the storm of the Lord has gone forth in wrath. Even a whirling tempest, it will swirl down on the head of the wicked. The anger of the Lord will not turn back until He has performed and carried out the purposes of His heart. In the last days, you will clearly understand it. And I find that interesting. Because what God is saying through Jeremiah to His people Israel, to His people the Jews, is, I'm saying this to you now, you're not going to fully understand it until the last days. What, you mean the last days of Judah when they went into captivity? No. I mean until the last days. And the Bible's clear. Israel will finally get it. The Jewish people will finally come to understanding in the last days. They're not going to understand it until then. How do we know? Well, Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. God says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son 
They will weep bitterly over Him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. In that day there will be great mourning in Jerusalem like the mourning of Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo in the last days. Talking about the coming of Jesus. As Jesus comes, there will be mourning among the remnant of Israel who finally get it. They will finally understand just as He says, in the last days, you will clearly understand it. By the way, we're told that in that day there will be great weeping, great mourning in Jerusalem, like the mourning of Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. What is that all about? Hadad Ramon, it's identified as a village near the Jezreel Valley, near the valley of Megiddo. What great mourning, what great weeping happened in that valley back in Jeremiah's day? Anyone know? That was where Josiah died. The weeping in Hadad Ramon, Hadad Ramon, the village, wept over the death of King Josiah. And God says, the weeping, when you see the coming of the Son of Man, when you see Jesus, when you see me coming, is going to be like that day when the last good, the last decent king of Judah was killed as a young man, as a good king. And by the way, after David, there was no shepherd of Israel who loved the Word of God more than Josiah did. He was passionate about the Word. But with Josiah's death came really the death of Judah because from there on, the kings didn't care about the Word of God. They didn't listen any longer. Picking up verse 21, I did not send these prophets, but they ran. I did not speak to them, but they prophesied. If they had stood in my counsel, they would have announced my words to my people and would have turned them back from their evil way and from the evil of their deeds. God says in verse 23, Am I a God who is near, declares the Lord, and not a God far off? I love the way he says this. What he's saying in essence is, Am I only a local God? Am I just a local deity limited to a certain principality, a localized idol easily left or ignored or avoided? So that's the implication here. And we might ask ourselves today, can we leave God at home? Do we really view God as one that we can leave in the barn? You know, in the halls of church buildings or in the towers of cathedrals? That's where God is. The Lord says, am I also not a God far off? What's He getting at? What's He saying? The question vividly points out the immediacy of God's presence. As He says in verse 24, Can a man hide himself in hiding places so I do not see him? Declares the Lord. Do I not fill the heavens and the earth? Declares the Lord. Oh, the pervasive presence of God. He is everywhere. You cannot get away from Him. You can't hide from Him. You can't sneak around Him. I was asked a question on Sunday. How can Christ be in me and me in Christ? It's mind-blowing. And my answer was, yes it is. But it's possible because He is God. He is omnipresent. Which means, yes, present in my heart, and yes, present in the barn, and yes, present outside, and yes, present in all aspects of the world. He's in Canada. He knows what's going on. He's not left out. He is pervasive in all things. Psalm 139.7 Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you're there. 
If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, your right hand will lay hold of me. And so after opening the door to Jerusalem's pollution problem, the Lord reveals now the key to decontaminating the land and decontaminating the heart. Verse 25. I have heard what the prophets have said who prophesy falsely in my name, saying, I had a dream! I had a dream! How long? Is there anything in the hearts of the prophets who prophesy falsehood, even these prophets of the deception of their own heart, who intend to make my people forget my name by their dreams which they relate to one another, just as their fathers forgot my name because of Baal? The prophet who has a dream may relate his dream. But I love this. Listen, underline this one. Let him who has my word speak my word in truth. Man, you can dream all you want. Better to have my word. Better to speak my word. He says, what does straw have in common with grain, declares the Lord? Is not my word like fire, which by the way, burns straw, declares the Lord? and like a hammer which shatters a rock. Therefore, behold, I am against the prophets, declares the Lord, who steal my words from each other. Behold, I am against the prophets, declares the Lord, who use their tongues and declare, the Lord declares, thus saith the Lord, oh, God gave me this dream, oh, the Lord told me this. Careful. Behold, verse 32, I am against those who have prophesied false dreams, declares the Lord, and related them and led my people astray by their falsehoods and reckless boasting. Yet I did not send them or command them, nor do they furnish this people the slightest benefit, declares the Lord. Their prophecies are like empty calories, like straw instead of grain. The Word of God is provision for the heart. So where their prophecies are polluting the land, God's Word provides for. His provision is substantive. Speaking the Word of God for you and for me is preparation for what's coming. The more I speak it, the more I know it. Now, this whole section here, verse 25 through 32, raises some interesting questions regarding dreams and visions and prophecy, especially in these last days. And so we're going to come back and deal with that on Sunday, verse 33. Now when this people or the prophet or a priest asks you saying, what is the oracle of the Lord? Then you shall say to them, what oracle? <laughs> now stop right there for a second. The Hebrew word oracle is not a word that Jeremiah ever applies to his own prophecies. He never says, I received an oracle from the Lord. He never says, the oracle of the Lord God and then speaks the word. Jeremiah just says the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord declares. The word oracle in the Hebrew is masa, and it literally is translated a burden. It comes from the Hebrew word nasa. It's just a jump from that, which means to lift up. It's just like lifting up or bearing up a burden. The idea here, when the people say, what is this oracle, what is the oracle of the Lord, is they're asking, what is the burden of the Lord? The oracle is a heavy word. Okay, It's a weighty thing. Lifted from the heart of God, placed as a heavy thing on the heart of the prophet, and the Jewish mind would understand that an oracle is a burden. It's a heavy, weighty thing. It's a threat. 
Okay, Isaiah gave several oracles, and they were threats against the nation surrounding Israel. So an oracle is a threat. Typically not good. But what the Lord is doing here in the context is probably quoting a scornful question from the people. Now the people are saying to Jeremiah, Oh, what's the oracle now, Jeremiah? Again, that's the implication. Where's the big heavy word? You know, how's it going to go for us today, Jeremiah? Because remember, all the other prophets are prophesying peace. All the other prophets are saying, it's going to be great. We're protected. We're in Jerusalem. The temple, the temple, the temple, right? And Jeremiah's preaching doom and gloom. And so they go to Jeremiah, what's the oracle of the day? What are you going to prophesy? And the Lord responds, When this people, verse 33, or the prophet or a priest asks you, saying, What is the oracle? What is the burden of the Lord? Then you shall say to them, What burden? The Lord declares, I will abandon you. In other words, you are the burden, and I am going to unburden myself of you. You're asking me what the burden is? It's you. And I will abandon you. I'm going to lift this burden off my shoulders, and you will bear the burden of your own reproach. God doesn't have a whole lot of tolerance for scornful mocking. And just as in Judah, we know, as, we know today, in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking. Second Peter verse, chapter 3, verse 3 and 4. In verse 7 of 2 Peter 3, Peter writes, But by His word the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. God just doesn't tolerate mocking. Verse 34 going on, Then as for the prophet or the priest or the people who say, The oracle of the Lord, I will bring punishment upon that man and his household. Thus will each of you say to his neighbor and to his brother, What has the Lord answered? Or what has the Lord spoken? For you will no longer remember the oracle of the Lord, because every man's own word will become the oracle, and you have perverted the words of the living God, the Lord of hosts, our God. Something going on again among the prophets in Jeremiah's day was saying, I've got a burden from the Lord. I've got a heavy word. He's going to wipe out Babylon and we're going to be just fine. And they would, they would use, you know, we call it Christianese. You know? Religious language to make our prayers sound more impressive or to make our word from the Lord sound more substantive. Well, the Lord said to me, and I'm going to use a thus... Because when I say, thus saith the Lord, when I speak it in the King James, it's more impressive. <laughs> you know, or when you pray. Have you ever, you ever been around someone who, when they start to pray, they go into this different language that they never use any other time? But when they pray. It's like, just talk to the Lord, man. Amen. Just use the words that you use. He's not impressed. And so they were using this kind of language. Verse 37, thus you will say to that prophet, what has the Lord answered you? And what has the Lord spoken? See, that's the issue. It's not my dreams, my visions, my ideas, my concepts, my you know, stuff. It's what has the Lord spoken? For if you say, verse 38, the oracle of the Lord, surely thus says the Lord, because you said this word, the oracle of the Lord, I have also sent to you saying, you shall not say the oracle of the Lord. Knock it off. 
Verse 39, Therefore, behold, I will surely forget you and cast you away from my presence along with the city which I gave you and your fathers. I will put an everlasting reproach on you and an everlasting humiliation which will not be forgotten. And some would say, See, replacement theology, Israel had their chance, they blew it, and now they have everlasting reproach and humiliation. No. The everlasting reproach and the everlasting humiliation is on the heart, on the person that scorns the Lord, that mocks the Lord, or that is pretentious and religious where the Lord is calling for relationship. It is not on Judah and Israel. It's on the people who mocked God. Remember back what he said in chapter 23, verse 28, Let him who has my word speak my word in truth. Chapter 24. We can date this chapter, and you might want to write this in your Bible margins, 597 B.C. Chapter 24 happens in 597 B.C. It immediately follows Jeconiah or Coniah's exile to Babylon. Remember, I've told you before, there were three waves of exile. Okay, This is now the second wave where Jeconiah and his mother and a lot of the rulers and leaders in Jerusalem are hauled off into Babylonian exile. And this is now the beginning of Zedekiah's rule. Verse 1, chapter 24. After Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away captive Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and the officials of Judah, with the craftsmen and the smiths from Jerusalem, and had brought them to Babylon, the Lord showed me, behold, two baskets of figs set before the temple of the Lord. Okay, so here's what's happening. This has just happened, second wave, drawn out. The city is really shaken up by this because we're supposed to have peace, but we just lost our king. We lost the ruling class and they're all gone. The craftsmen are gone, the important, they're all gone. And here we are going, it's the deal. And the Lord showed Jeremiah two baskets of fruit, two baskets of figs. Now, he's going to go on and give Jeremiah a parable. But before we get any further, was this parable a vision or did God just point out a couple of fruit bowls sitting by the temple? And it's important to note the difference here because there are legitimate dreams. And again, I'm going to talk about this more on Sunday. There are legitimate visions from the Lord. This is not one of those instances where like Jesus would tell parables and He would just draw. You know, a farmer went out to sow and you can almost imagine Him pointing to a farmer on a distant field. And using what was visual and what was tangible and what was right there. In this instance, God gives Jeremiah a vision. Okay, he, he sees in vision form two baskets of figs. How do you know? I'll let Feinberg answer that. Charles Feinberg, in his excellent commentary, says the Hebrew word showed, the Lord showed Jeremiah two baskets of figs, is ra'ah. It's written in the causative stem. And it's used to describe supernatural disclosure. Okay, The reason I quote Feinberg is I'm not smart enough to even know what a causative stem is. But he knows. And being a Hebrew scholar and a Jew himself, he explains that. So, used in this way, the word ra'ah means something supernatural has been disclosed to Jeremiah. All right, So we understand right off the bat. In fact, the same word ra'ah is used in Amos by the prophet Amos uh, four different times. Amos chapter 7, verses 1, 4, and 7, where he says, Thus the Lord God showed me, and behold, He was forming a locust swarm when the spring crop began to sprout. 
He says, the Lord God showed me, and behold, the Lord God was calling to contend with them by fire, and it consumed the great deep, and it began to consume the farmland. That's Amos chapter 7, verse 4. Amos 7, 7, He showed me, and behold, the Lord was standing by a vertical wall with a plumb line in His hand. Okay, So, supernatural vision. And in a similar vision, Amos the prophet said, The Lord God showed me, behold, a basket of summer fruit. Probably figs. Well, Jeremiah receives a vision. He has an actual, literal, legitimate vision. And it's of two baskets of figs. Verse 2, one basket had very good figs, like first ripe figs. And the other basket had very bad figs, which could not be eaten due to rottenness. By the way, we're now in part 2. Part 2 is ripeness versus rottenness. Ripeness versus rottenness. And the word of the Lord came to me. So he sees these two baskets of figs. Ripe figs, beautiful, sweet, good to eat. Rotten, stinking figs in the other basket. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, Thus says the God of Israel, Like these good figs, so I will regard as good the captives of Judah, who I have sent out of this place into the land of the Chaldeans. I will set my eyes on them for good. I will bring them again into this land. I will build them up and not overthrow them. And I will plant them and not pluck them up. Verse 7, I will give them a heart to know me. For I am the Lord, and they will be my people, and I will be their God, and they will return to me with their whole heart. First ripe figs. Gang, first ripe figs are considered the juiciest, tastiest, most desirable figs. These are the ones, these are the ones you want to eat. Isaiah chapter 28 verse 4, he said, The fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is at the head of the fertile valley, will be like first ripe figs prior to summer, which one sees as soon as it's in his hand, he eats it. The good figs that he's describing in the basket, in the parable, the good figs represent the exiles. Okay? Those who go into Babylonian captivity. He says, I'm going to preserve them. These are the good figs. This is what I want for my people. People like Daniel, who would go into exile as a young man. Zerubbabel, Joshua, Ezra, Nehemiah, who would come back out of the exile. They lived in the exile, and what the Lord did there in Babylon is He gave them a heart for Him. A heart to love Him. A heart to follow after Him and to know Him. By the way, there is another group like that who we could call first ripe figs. And these are the ones who take a part in the first resurrection. First figs are those in the first resurrection. Revelation 20 verse 6, blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. What is the first resurrection? It began with Jesus. Since Jesus, the first fruits... Every person who died in Christ since then is part of the first resurrection. All the way up to present day. If you die today, you are part of the first resurrection. All the way through the rapture of the church. When the church is raptured, thus ends the first resurrection. You want to be part of that. okay? Part of those who die in Christ. Now, I, let me add on to that. I would tack on an ending. Those who die in faith after the rapture, in the tribulation, but come to faith in Jesus they also will be considered part of the first resurrection. 
Why? Because Revelation 20 verse 6 says, over these the second death has no power. The first death is physical death. The second death is the spiritual death that is eternal and it is damnable. So those who die the second death are those who spend eternity separated from God in hell. That's the second death. If you are part of the first resurrection, you will not take part in the second death. If you're part of the first resurrection, you're like first ripe figs. You're good figs. Bunch of fig newtons. That's what we are. Okay? Verse 8. But, like the bad figs, which cannot be eaten due to rottenness, indeed, thus says the Lord, so I will abandon Zedekiah, king of Judah, and his officials, and the remnant of Jerusalem who remain in this land, and the ones who dwell in the land of Egypt. Gang, the bad figs are those who refuse captivity. Those who rebel against the Lord, not just rebel in their sin, but they rebel against His punishment. They rebel against His discipline. These are those who would hide out in the land and not be taken off to Babylon. Or, as we'll see later in the book of Jeremiah, the group who grab Jeremiah himself and drag him with them and head off to Egypt to find safety and security with the Egyptians. And God says, don't go there. Don't go there and don't stay here. Go into captivity. That's my will for you. That's what I want for you. Good figs are those who accept and receive godly discipline. 1 Corinthians 11.31 says, If we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. Godly discipline. Man, receive it, accept it. When the word is bitter to your own heart because it opens the door to truth of sin in your life, accept the discipline of the Lord. Receive His discipline. If He causes you to go into some sort of captivity, deal with some sort of fallout from your sin, accept it as from the Lord. And seek His will in that. Because the bad figs are those who reject and refuse godly discipline. It always makes for bad, bitter figs. Those who say, I don't want the discipline of the Lord. Like good figs, there's a sweetness, there's a softness of heart and a fruitfulness among those who accept the discipline of the Lord. But to reject it brings bitterness. To reject it brings hard-heartedness and most certainly a lack of fruit. Jesus said in Matthew 12.33, the tree is known by its fruit. That's how you can tell. You know, if someone's walking with the Lord, if someone is speaking the word of the Lord, look at the fruit. What is the fruit? Jesus said in John 15, 2, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, He prunes it. He prunes it. He disciplines it. So that it will bear more fruit. Good figs accept the discipline of the Lord. Don't ever be afraid of godly discipline. Even punishment for the Lord because it's for the purpose of softening the branches that they might bear more fruit. Now the residual fruit of bad figs, those left in who hid out in the land, those who went down to Egypt, a rottenness would result. And it would not just happen in the fall of Jerusalem, it would result in what we even see all the way down the line in 70 A.D., And the parable ends with that in view. Verse 9, I will make them a terror and an evil for all the kingdoms of the earth as a reproach and a proverb, a taunt and a curse in all places where I will scatter them. 
I will send the sword, the famine, the pestilence upon them until they are destroyed from the land which I gave to them and their forefathers. And it's a greater destruction than that of Babylon. He ends this parable saying, this is what's coming, and it's going to come by Rome in A.D. 70. The full weight of this would not be felt until 600 years later. A little over 500 years after the exile, Rome will annihilate Jerusalem and Judea. And I think of the quote that I heard several years ago from John Corson. He said, The wheels of judgment turn slowly, but they grind thoroughly. God begins to judge. But sometimes we don't see it right away. We don't experience it right away. We think, Lord, why aren't you moving on this? You know, we're like the, those who come out of the tribulation and they're under the throne and they're saying, How long, O Lord? Canada now has pronounced your word to be a hate crime. How how long, Lord? The wheels of judgment, they will turn slowly but grind thoroughly. And as we come into chapter 25, we see the wheels turning. The wheels begin to turn slowly at first. They begin with God's people. They begin with Jerusalem. They will spread out to the entire global scene. Jeremiah gives us another exact date for... uh, Chapter 25, it's 605 B.C. So now we're jumping back. Chapter 24 was in 597. We jump back now to 605 B.C. Before that, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. That was the the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Verse 2. Which Jeremiah the prophet spoke to all the people of Judah and to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, From the thirteenth year of Josiah the son of Ammon, king of Judah, even to this day, these twenty-three years, the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken to you again and again, but you have not listened. You have not listened. Gang, godly listening produces rightness over rottenness. It is His provision rather than our pollution. Godly listening results in obedient faith. As we hear Him, He turns our feet away from evil. Now listen, Jesus prayed, and you know the prayer, Matthew 6.13, in the Lord's Prayer, He said, Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You're familiar with that. Don't lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Does he say that because God might lead us into temptation? No. The Bible says, let no man say that he is tempted by God. God doesn't tempt anyone. So why then does Jesus say, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil? Gang, he's using language to emphasize the right path of God that God does not lead into temptation, that the only leading of the Spirit of God is away from evil. God leads us right. He leads us into righteousness, but we have got to listen. And Jeremiah cries out, you have not listened! Imagine that. 23 years. No one's listening. The bridge has been here coming up on 10. 23 years Jeremiah has persisted in the teaching of the Word of God. No one's paying any attention. No one's listening. Verse 4, And the Lord has sent to you all His servants, the prophets, again and again, but you have not listened, nor inclined 
your ear to hear, saying, Turn now everyone from his evil way and from the evil of your deeds and dwell on the land which the Lord has given to you and your forefathers forever and ever. Do not go after other gods to serve them and to worship them and do not provoke Me to anger with the work of your hands and I will do you no harm. He's repeating what He's preached for 23 years. Yet you have not listened to Me, declares the Lord, in order that you might provoke Me to anger with the work of your hands to your own harm. Thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed My words... Behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, declares the Lord, and I will send them to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant. And I will bring them against this land and against its inhabitants and against all these nations round about, and I will utterly destroy them and make them a horror and a hissing and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will take from them the voice of joy and the voice of gladness and the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride and the sound of the millstone and the light of the lamp. This whole land will be a desolation and a horror, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Bible students, listen up. You remember why God prescribed 70 years in Babylon, right? What does it have to do with? Anyone know? 70 Sabbaths. Right, the sabbatical year. For 490 years in the land, they had never kept that seventh year, the seventh year where the land was to lie fallow. Don't do any planting. Every seventh year, you take the year off. I think it's a great idea. I still don't understand. Well, I kind of do. Part of me says the year off would be great, but part of my humanity says, yeah, but I could also get ahead. If I work that year and my neighbors are taking the year off, I'm one year ahead of them. I can make a few extra bucks. God, to make up for the 70 times the people skipped out on the sabbatical year, will send them now into captivity for 70 years. Now listen, because it gets really interesting here. Jeremiah chapter 25 is one of the most important chapters in all Hebrew prophecy. What we have before us. Why? Because it is this chapter, it was this chapter that another Hebrew prophet was reading while exiled in Babylon. The prophet's name was Daniel. Daniel was studying Jeremiah 25 when he realizes suddenly, verse 11, will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. And old Daniel, who was probably 16 or 17 years old when he was exiled to Babylon, old Daniel realizes, it's almost over. We're at the end of 70. Daniel chapter 9, verse 2. Actually, I'll start in verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which was to be revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. Daniel's reading Jeremiah 25. He sees this, and we come to part 3, the final part of our study, the immediate versus the imminent. The immediate versus the imminent. When Daniel reads Jeremiah 25, comes to verse 11, he recognizes the 70-year captivity was about to immediately be fulfilled. They are on the cusp of the immediate. And so Daniel immediately fell to his knees. 
He immediately began repenting and he began praying for his people. And in Daniel chapter 9, a prayer that takes roughly three to three and a half minutes to read in Hebrew. In that time, God dispatches the angel Gabriel from heaven. Gabriel comes down before Daniel and gives Daniel the whole entire future plan of Israel, the prophecy of the 70 sevens. Something about this 70. Daniel 9, 24 through 27. We won't go there tonight, but it's amazing. It's the final 70, seven year periods left for the people of Israel. At the end of the 70 years of captivity, as Daniel realizes 70 years have been completed, Gabriel says, I got 70 more for you. 70, not years, but 70 sevens. That's 490 years. 483 of these years, gang, you know have been fulfilled precisely. Seven years remain. When Jesus was crucified, 483 years from the beginning of Gabriel bringing the prophecy to Daniel, from the beginning all the way to the crucifixion, exactly 483 years would take place. Jesus is crucified, the clock stops. Why? Because now we enter the times of the Gentiles. 483 years for Israel. There's seven years left for Israel. How long is the tribulation? Seven years. What does this tell us about the prophet Daniel? It tells us he was a literal Bible student. Daniel read the prophecy of Jeremiah and didn't say... We'll serve the king of Babylon 70 years. So that'll be roughly, uh, amillennially speaking, somewhere between, you know, it'll be an expanse of time. He says, well, the Bible says 70 years. Therefore, it has been 70 years. Therefore, we're about to go home. It's almost over. Daniel is a student of literal Bible study. But listen, he's also a student of prophecy. Don't get tired of Bible prophecy. Don't don't let it wear out on you. Some people do. Some people say, ah, you know, enough prophecy, Rick. We've heard enough of the prophetic around here, Rick. Well, then we've got to take roughly a fourth, almost to a third of the Bible and rip it out because that much of it is prophecy. If you're going to study God's Word, you're going to study it every fourth sentence, (laughs) roughly. It's prophecy. And Daniel knew that 70 meant 70, and Daniel was himself an avid student of prophecy. And know this, what was the very first thing that Jesus taught after His resurrection? Prophecy! It's the first thing He talked about. Luke 24, 27 tells us, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He explained to them the things concerning Himself in the Scriptures. Jesus opens up and reveals Bible prophecy as His first post-resurrection teaching. Well, that makes sense because Revelation 19, verse 10 says the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. It's what it's all about. It's all here to point us to Jesus Christ. Dwight L. Moody said, if there's one truth that will wake the church up, it's the fact that Jesus Christ could come again at any moment. And he's right. That's what gets us stirred up. That's what's exciting to me. It's not sitting here and going, how much longer is Rick going to teach? No, it's he could come before I'm done. Wouldn't that be great? You're going, yeah, could it be now? By the way, it's interesting. 
God always deals with Israel on specified time schedules. I got 77s for you, Israel. 483 years. In the tribulation, it's going to be seven years. A time, times, and half a time, plus a time, times, and half a time. God's very specific. Israel, here's how long I have for you. He's not with the church. What does he tell the church? You don't know the day or the hour. Why? Why why didn't he just tell us? Because we'd be lazy. Because he knows what's good for our hearts. And it is good for our hearts to live in not immediacy, but imminency. Daniel saw the immediate fulfillment of a prophecy before his very eyes. A time schedule being fulfilled. We live in the imminency of the coming of Jesus. That Jesus could come at any time. And so we live that way. Now read on. Verse 12. It will be when 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon. And that nation, declares the Lord, for their iniquity. And the land of the Chaldeans. And I will make it an everlasting desolation. I will bring upon that land all my words which I have pronounced against it. All that is written in this book which Jeremiah has prophesied against all the nations. For many nations and great kings will make slaves of them, even of them, and I will recompense them according to their deeds and according to the work of their hands. God goes into something here through Jeremiah and the rest of the chapter, and that is pulling out judgment, not just of Judah, but of the nations. Judgment of Babylon. Yes, Babylon is the instrument of punishment, but Babylon is sick and twisted, idolatrous and sinful, and they will pay for that. And they will be judged for that. Pay close attention to this because there's an imminency here as this prophecy of the wheels of judgment grind literally throughout the Middle East and then will continue on to the globe in the rest of the chapter. Verse 15. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, thus He says to me, Take this cup of the wine of wrath from My hand and cause all the nations whom I send you to drink it. They will drink and stagger and go mad because of the sword that I will send among them. Do you remember Jeremiah's commission? If you look back quickly, all the way back to chapter 1, verse 10, I'll just read it to you. It says, See, I have appointed you this day over the nations and over the kingdoms to pluck up, to break down, to destroy, to overthrow, to build, and to plant. Jeremiah is not just a prophet to Judah. He's a prophet to the world. He's a prophet to all the nations. And by the way, that includes this nation. And she'll see in just a moment. So we continue on. He prophesies to all the nations. He speaks to all the nations. But the question is, will they listen? Verse 17. Then I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations to whom the Lord sent me drink it. Now, of course, he's seeing this in a vision. Watch this. Jerusalem and the cities of Judah and its kings and its princes to make them a ruin, a horror, a hissing, and a curse as it is to this day. He begins at the heart of things with Judah. They are the first to feel the weight of the wrath of God. And they feel it, 586 B.C. They feel it again, 70 A.D. They will feel it a third and final time in the tribulation. Then verse 19. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, his servants his princes, and all his people, and all of the foreign people, and all of the kings of the land of Uds, 
All the kings of the land of the Philistines, now watch this, Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron, and the remnant of Ashdod, he describes the pentaverate of Palestine. If I were an Arab living in the Gaza Strip today, I would not want to be associated with the Philistines. Because right here they are judged. By the time Jeremiah comes along, they're not very strong. There's not much left of the Philistines. They're just kind of scattered and they will be completely wiped off the map. But I really have come to believe that yes, there is a representative of the Philistines today. And if they want to receive the judgment that is promised to the Philistines of old, they will receive the, the promised judgment today as well. Gaza, Ashkelon, Akron, Ashdod, the land of the Philistines, or we might say today the Palestinians. Edom, Moab, and all the sons of Ammon, Bible students. Those three countries. What country is that today? That's Jordan. Read on. All the kings of Tyre and the kings of Zidon and the kings of the coastlands beyond the sea. What's he talking about with Tyre and Zidon? Lebanon. Lebanon. Right. The coastlands beyond the sea would include Greece. It could go even further than that. And verse 23, Dedan, Tima, Boots, and all those who cut the corners of their hair. So, let your hair grow, guys. And all the kings of Arabia and the kings of the foreign people who dwell in the desert. Verses 23 and 24 describe Saudi Arabia. It, it describes as well Bedouin tribes living throughout the region. All the kings of Zimri, all the kings of Elam, all the kings of Media. Gang, it's Iraq and Iran. What he has just described is the entire Middle East. Verse 26, And all the kings of the north, near and far, one with another, and all the kingdoms of the earth, that just got big, (laughs) which are upon the face of the ground, and the king of Shishak shall drink after them. Shishak is, we believe, Babylon. It's the only time this word is ever used in the Scripture, and it's probably some of your Bibles in the notes say a cryptic name for Babylon. And it was a way of cryptically writing. And we think that that's what Jeremiah was doing because Nebuchadnezzar was, he had already taken off Jeconiah, right? He was breathing down on the ranks of Judea. And so when Jeremiah wrote this, he may have written Shishak as kind of a code for the king of Babylon. But we understand that that is the king of Babylon today. Verse 27, you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Drink, be drunk, vomit, fall, and rise no more, because of the sword which I will send among you. And it will be, if they refuse to take the cup from your hand to drink, that you will say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, You shall surely drink. He goes through all this. It's amazing. He threatens the imminent judgment of all the nations of the world. Why does he do this? Why is God so fired up against the whole entire planet? Look at verse 29. For behold, I am beginning to work calamity in this city which is called by my name. And shall you be completely free from punishment? You will not be free from punishment, for I am summoning a sword against all the inhabitants of the earth, declares the Lord of hosts. In other words, if the Lord is going to judge His own chosen people, Israel, what makes the world think it will escape judgment? If God's going to judge Israel, you think He's just going to let the world off scot-free? Especially for how this world has treated the Jewish people? 
It's amazing, the anti-Semitism, not just today, but of history. And I won't go into it, but you all have heard me say before, no people has been rejected or reproached like the Jewish people. And God has every right to punish His chosen people. He has every right. The Lord disciplines those whom He loves. He has every right to discipline Israel. As He has every right to discipline me as one of His children. But if Israel suffers, should we think that the nations of the world will somehow escape the punishment and the wrath of God? From Babylon, the prophet Ezekiel has a horrifying vision of the slaughter of Jerusalem, hearing the Lord command the following. Listen to this, Ezekiel 9, verse 6. Utterly slay old men, young men, maidens, little children, and women, but do not touch any man on whom is the mark. And you shall start, listen, you shall start from my sanctuary. So Ezekiel writes, they started with the elders who were before the temple. That's where the slaughter began, in the heart of the city of the Lord. At his temple, the Babylonian slaughter began there and would spread out. And the implication, gang, is if judgment starts there, where's it going to end? It doesn't just stop with the country of Israel. In the tribulation, the judgment lands on Jerusalem and will spread out, as Armageddon tells us, through the whole of the earth. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 4.17, it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? If If it is with difficulty that the righteous person is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? And here's where we see what I was talking about before. Those massive wheels of judgment, they begin by turning slowly, but they grind thoroughly. And by the way, they speed up as time goes on. Verse 30, Therefore you shall prophesy against them all these words, and you shall say to them, The Lord will roar from on high and utters His voice from His holy habitation. He will roar mightily against His fold. That is against His own people Israel. He will shout like those who tread the grapes against all the inhabitants of the earth. A clamor has come to the end of the earth because the Lord has a controversy with the nations. He is entering into judgment with all flesh. As for the wicked, He has given them to the sword, declares the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, evil is going forth from nation to nation, and a great storm is being stirred up from the remotest parts of the earth. Those slain by the Lord on that day will be from one end of the earth to the other. They will not be lamented, gathered, or buried. They will be like dung on the face of the ground. And this is unquestionably an apocalyptic judgment of the whole world. He's talking about the Great Tribulation. He's gone beyond the judgment coming in 586 of Judah, beyond the judgment of Babylon immediately to the imminency of what will come in the end. Revelation 14.19 The angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. Revelation 19.15 Speaking of Jesus, from His mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it He may strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron, and He treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And as I said, that testifies of Jesus, the Spirit of all Bible prophecy. Verse 34. 
Wail, you shepherds, and cry, and wallow in ashes, you masters of the flock. For the days of your slaughter and your dispersions have come, and you will fall like a choice vessel, or like fine pottery. And he's talking once again, he's going back to the bad shepherds of the Jewish people. He's saying you're not going to get away. Flight will perish from the shepherds and escape from the masters of the flock. Hear the sound of the cry of the shepherds and the wailing of the masters of the flock, for the Lord is destroying their pasture. And the peaceful folds are made silent because of the fierce anger of the Lord. And so it all comes full circle. But watch this. Verse 38. He has left His hiding place like the lion. For their land has become a horror because of the fierceness of the oppressing sword and because of His fierce anger. The masters of the flock, they're the leaders, the shepherds. The flock, of course, is the elect, Israel themselves. But in this concluding judgment, notice that beginning in verse 30, He says the Lord will roar from on high and closing with verse 38, He has left His hiding place like the lion. Because judgment comes from the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Revelation 5 verse 5 tells us the Lion of the tribe of Judah has overcome. And brothers and sisters, we will know this and we will know it imminently and it may be at any time. So reflecting on all of this, the question we leave with is will we be polluted or will we be prepared? Will we be rotten or will we be Ripe for the picking. Let's pray. Father, Your Word is serious. It is threatening. It is an oracle and we don't use that word lightly. The burden of the Word of the Lord we don't throw out there tonight as though one of us has come up with some magnificent new idea. Father, Your Word through the prophet Jeremiah speaks very clearly of Your intentions. And we recognize Your intentions first and foremost are to save. But Lord, we recognize also there will be rebellion. That there is rebellion and rejection of Your Word in the world today. May we, Father, be counted among the ripe good figs. May we be counted among those who are a part of the first resurrection. May we be called home. And we pray as so often as we do here, Lord. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Any questions? We covered a lot of ground there. Anything that didn't make sense in the flybys?